Raising Joyful Children in an Angry World, a podcast dedicated to faithful parents navigating their families through a stormy culture. The number of Christian families that are regularly attending worship or are part of a church membership is at an all-time low in America. Welcome back to Raising Joyful Children in an Angry World. I'm your host, Paul Osborne. Today, I want to tackle the casualties of consumeristic Christianity. Wow, that's a big title, but it has a big role in terms of understanding joyfulness for our kids. I don't know if you've seen, but it's being pretty widely reported that the number of Christian families that are regularly attending worship or are part of a church membership is at an all-time low in America. Claire Ansbury for the Wall Street Journal wrote a piece here, 1st of August, describing it by tracking the millennial and Gen X as leading the way. There's also pieces all over the Atlantic, Christianity Today, USA Today. You can see a lot of reporting on this particular topic. And what is interesting to me, what is striking to me, is that when the folks that are interviewed who are withdrawn, their reason set is amazingly similar to what you would hear in any other change of consumer behavior. Why did you quit going to the gym? It was more convenient for me to work out at home on my Peloton bike. Why did you stop going to the mall? My shopping experience online was better. And this same sort of reasoning seems to be influencing these decisions of withdrawal that uh, comes along as a consumeristic evaluation tools of the kingdom of heaven and its earthly representation of it in the church. Now, it's interesting if you look at the progression of these two generations coming up, because you start with Bill Hybels' church of Willow Creek. He had the seeker-sensitive. That was a movement in the 80s and 90s, even into the 2000s. And then you have Rick Warren, who has the purpose-driven church out at Saddleback. And then today you have this huge church in Houston of Joel Olstein. And his book is called Your Best Life Now. There is this progression, right, of felt needs to fulfillment of purpose to successful life. And I'm not trying to say any of these ideas are horrible or that the motive was wrong. I don't want to get into the critique of this or the defense of it. But you can see that this prioritization of the worshiper's needs and the worshiper's wants can surpass the importance and the emphasis of the object of our worship, which is Jesus Christ. We come to church to worship God. We start with God, and then we move to us. But this this kind of movement that we've seen in many efforts to evangelize and to make people feel more welcome has created what we're now seeing as a great withdrawal. I think we have to admit, first and foremost, we live in a consumer-driven society. Consumer spending, confidence, sentiment, it all drives the economy and politics and trends. So I think we have to be realistic and understand that some of this is going to leak into the church. If you've ever sat on a committee for education, pastor search, property search, whatever it is, you know that this kind of valuation comes in. But what I'm concerned about is the miscalculation that it has in terms of valuing the kingdom of heaven. 
In contrast, you can read Gerald's sister's book, Resilient Faith, how the early Christian church, the third way he called it, changed the world. And he walks you through the persecution and the endurance that the early church took on. It's the least consumeristic time within the church. People were being burned alive and fed to lions. And yet these early Christians have this zeal for worship and for coming and participating in worship. And it's interesting that Gerald Sister points out that they discovered that Jesus, he says it this way, gave them a new identity. He put their families within a new nation, a nation within a nation, and where they realized that all real authority rested in Jesus Christ. See, they saw the church as a vital part of their life, where belonging was something that put their lives in danger, and yet they seemed to be driven to it. And it's quite a contrast to the successful life of America And this consumerism seems to be, at least in part, harvesting something that's the very opposite. There's an Aubrey Hepburn movie with Cary Grant called The Charade that I think helps point out where we are. Aubrey Hepburn plays a woman who's about to become a divorcee, and it's in 1963. And and her ex-husband, unbeknown to her, is part of a gold robbery at the end of World War II. And as the movie starts, his accomplices, who were all caught, he wasn't, are about to be released from jail, and they want their share of the gold. And they're coming for him and for her. Her ex has sold the gold, and he bought a rare trading stamp that he has sent to their nephew, hoping the boy will hold it while he fools his comrades and the authorities. And the nephew, of course, trades the stamp for a bunch of worthless stamps, And when Hepburn and Grant in the movie finally figure this out and they go to the merchant who made the trade, the old man smiles. I've been waiting for you. I've kept your stamp in safekeeping before the young boy lost it in a trade. And Jesus is waiting for us in Matthew 13 to explain how we value and how to understand the value of the kingdom of heaven. He says the kingdom of heaven, in verse 44, is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. The treasure is something that we don't earn. It's something that God has to reveal to us. And when we comprehend it, we understand that our net worth, the things that we have, are not anywhere near as valuable. In fact, it's worth all that you own. He then goes to someone who's wealthy, uh, a person that's a collector and trader of pearls. This was how you stored great amounts of wealth in this time. And he says, the one finding the one great pearl, in verse 46, went and sold all that he had and bought the great pearl. He traded all of his pearls for the one great one. Why did these folks do this? Then he goes on to explain it, how we actually value the kingdom of heaven. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. And so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is the value 
The kingdom of heaven is eternal because God is eternal. And God's gifts of joy, of love, of relationship are eternal. And yet everything that we have is temporal. doesn't mean that it's not good. It just means that it's temporal. In, in the Gospel of John in chapter 6, John says, Do not toil for the food that spoils, but for the food that does not spoil. Kind of helps you understand the Lord's Supper a little bit. But it's really about all of life. And then in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 10, Isaiah says, And the ransom, that's us of the Lord, shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. The gifts and the treasures in the kingdom are worth so much because of their eternal uh, nature and the way that they work. And then Jesus closes all this up by saying, have you understood all these things? And they said, yes. He said, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old, right? You ever go to somebody that has a collection of something and they say, oh, let me show you. And they show you their treasures that they just got and they show you what's old. And this is the concept that the Lord is wrapping around this because these gifts are eternal. So the big question, of course, is then how do we get our kids to grasp this treasure, to understand and find this treasure? Let's be realistic here. Our kids are squirming in church. They're coloring books. They're dinosaur or whatever. I, I understand this. This is a very long and patient road that we go down. But first and foremost, we have to trust that God will open their eyes to find the treasure themselves. They need to hear the word of God. They need to be under a church with word and sacraments and God will open it and share the gift. But I also think that we have to live like we understand the treasure, and we have to be mindful of our treasures and understand their temporariness. But there's a couple of activities that I think can help kids to grasp and understand what the Holy Spirit is going to reveal. One of them is treasure hunting, just being out and looking at the treasures of nature, what God has created, participating in Easter egg hunts, to cache hunting, to just staging a, a fun treasure hunt. This kind of exploration or collecting seashells or something helps us understand that activity of hunting for the treasure, of searching, and then finding something that you didn't earn. That is an experience I think we need to help our kids understand. And then the second thing I want to suggest is that kids will understand the eternal value of the kingdom of heaven by participating in the exchange and trading and understanding of commerce, collecting things like stamps, coins, beanie babies, whatever the collectible is, and allowing them with allowance money or earned money to go out and buy a collectible and trade in that collectible. Because in doing that, you start to learn, whoa, wait a minute, I thought this thing was worth a lot. Then when I go to sell it, it's lost a lot of value. And the other thing that you're going to learn that I just learned recently, we had sold our house probably three or four years ago, had bins of these Beanie Babies, and I'm looking on eBay, and I'm like, whoa, these things are worth something. Whatever I get, I'll split it up with you kids. I'm going to try and sell them. And then I, I realized, wait a minute, I've got a bunch of them, but I don't have the rarer one. And one of the things that collecting and trading does, and you even see it in this example 
in, in Matthew 13 is it teaches us that the value of something is its rarity. And of course, what is the most rare treasure that there is, and that is eternal life. The most rare thing is there only is one God. There's one God, one king, one crown. And that rarity includes one promise of eternal joy and eternal life. That's one of the things that makes this kingdom of heaven so incredibly valuable. No other faith, no other tradition comes and makes this statement and no one has risen from the dead. This is part of the reason you go back and you go, wow, how could these people understand the, the treasure of this when they were being persecuted so much? And you read this through Gerald's sister and other historians. And perhaps the reason is that within the first 150 years or 200 years, these are folks that are disciples of the disciples who still see, oh yeah, this actually happened. God overcame the death on the cross, and they saw him on the earth. And this event has not lost its amazement. It, it's not been, oh yeah, I, I agreed to something, and now I've got my, my policy for when I die, and now I go live my best life now. But rather, it was essential to understanding that this is where we go and find the eternal treasures. And then lastly, I want to suggest something that may sound a little strange to some of you, but I grew up in First Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh. This church celebrated its bicentennial before America did. And we had a graveyard next to the church, as many old churches do. And there's something about being around graveyards and understanding that, yes, death does exist, that helps us also understand the value of the treasure. So let me close with a story when I first moved to Dallas with my family, I went to a mega church out in the suburbs. And one of the things that would be said pretty routinely on Sunday mornings was, would you be interested in a guilt-free Sunday? We have two services on Saturday night, and then you can do whatever you want on Sunday. This was an odd thing. I think the intention behind it was to free up more seats in the worship centers on Sunday. And then if these folks would go to Saturday night, it would allow them to evangelize more, grow more. That was what I believe was the motive. But there's something that is implied in that statement that you really don't want to go to church. It's something you're obligated to do. And it's a checklist thing. It's like your annual physical. It's not pleasant, but hey, we do it. I don't think that was the man's intention, but that kind of mindset can slip in. The church isn't really what we really want to do. And it's because we don't understand the value of the kingdom of heaven. We need to see church as a place where we go to worship God, who's given us all the temporal benefits. He's also promised to us eternal life, eternal joy, and that we as a family will always be together. And that is why we go to church and that's why it's important. Look, God understands our needs. We'll talk about purpose at some point in this podcast and the good life and what all that means. But those can't, they can't blind us. They can't come to us with a set of measurements that miscalculate the eternal value of the kingdom of heaven. 
And when we get that right, we'll never withdraw. The ultimate battle for the heart and soul is a fight for identity. Our King invites our kids to know who they are, what to believe, and where they belong. Until next time, let's remember the words, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.